Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Six more weeks of lockdown and new travel curbs are coming. But as the virus death toll hits 3,000, what is the government's strategy? Government has decided to extend all of the current level five restrictions until the 5th of March. We'll be live at government buildings with our political correspondent, Gavin Riley, and Public Expenditure Minister, Michael McGrath, is here with me. Also tonight, the global view from Europe and Australia and how the pandemic is devastating local economies in the regions here. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. live now to our political correspondent Gavin Riley, who's at Government Buildings. And Gavin, what's the proposed timeline for the government's latest pandemic plan? Well, we know at the very least is that it's going to be six weeks of lockdown. And I say at the very least because the clear message coming from government at the press conference this evening was that it could be quite a deal longer. Micheál Martin told us about the latest modelling from Neffet that says that even though the case numbers are now beginning to come down, and if you look at the averages every day, they are now firmly beginning to fall, the numbers in hospitals are not falling at quite the same rate. And we still could have a situation where at the end of next month, at the end of February, there are between 800 and 1,300 people still in hospitals with COVID. And you could still have around 100 people in intensive care with the virus at that time. That's around half of the current numbers, but it would still be a very large chunk of the healthcare system devoted to COVID-19. And of course, as soon as you begin to relax the measures, then you begin to chip away at that again. You begin to have more people getting infected, more people requiring hospital treatment. Simply, it would be far too high to consider that. So even though the government is saying six weeks more lockdown, there isn't going to be some great unleashing on March the 5th. If anything, there could still be continued restrictions and continued level five far beyond that as well. Gavin we've heard growing calls for a zero Covid policy but the government is still resisting it. They're still resisting it on several fronts. Firstly, because they just don't believe that it's possible or tenable to arrange it on an all-Ireland basis because it would require the North and South operating in lockstep. That is now the case, by the way, when it comes to lockdown. The North is also observing full lockdown until March the 5th. But in terms of broader issues like mandatory quarantine for international travellers and passenger data sharing, it's all being worked on. But the idea of having an all-Ireland or even a two-Ireland approach with Britain is still very much in its early days. But we also heard separately from ministers like the Taoiseach Tánaiste and Stephen Donnelly about other reasons why they simply don't believe it is tenable. And one of the proposals that they put forward was that you can't be absolutely sure that vaccination will do the trick. And although we have presented vaccination as being something of a silver bullet, people presuming life can go back to normal after all adults are vaccinated at the end of September, ministers are a little bit more reticent around that. They say public health officials are always more guarded. You can't be totally sure that there will be herd immunity, even though you would have vaccinated all adults. You have to wait and see how it works out. And they're advising caution 
question because part of zero COVID is premised on the idea that vaccines will work. And right now they just want to be a little bit more guarded in then presuming that that would absolutely be the case. Gavin, with the prospect now of rolling lockdowns, were there any indications today of an exit strategy? Uh, well, perhaps frustrating for a lot of people to hear, but part of the exit strategy really is vaccination. That we're told that by the end of March that we'll have all healthcare workers, all uh, vulnerable older people in, in uh, facilities like nursing homes, for example, and a lot of the older population will have been completely vaccinated by that point, 700,000 people. And that is irrespective, it would seem, of the interruptions in the AstraZeneca supply because we're expecting to get more from Pfizer, which might help to offset that. But then you're still looking at, well, what happens when you begin to relax level five, when you come out of lockdown at some point what happens next because now that we know the faster spreading British variant is the most dominant one in Ireland whenever you relax the restrictions the virus is going to bounce back slightly quicker than it has done every other time so that sort of begs the question can you can still go along the government's previous strategy of relaxing restrictions when the virus is low and tightening them when the virus is high can you afford to keep yo-yoing that way knowing that the virus is now going to be that little bit more resilient but it seems that is the government's predominant strategy because they simply don't believe anything else like zero COVID or of course are embracing the virus are tenable options at this point. Okay Gavin thank you for that update tonight. Well Labour TD Duncan Smith joins me now for some opposition reaction to the latest measures and Duncan you want to see more done? Uh, yes uh, we do Claire and if we just take a moment to say on this day uh, where we passed the very sad total of 3,000 deaths. It's incumbent on all of us in the bureaucracy on both sides of the House to work constructively towards trying to suppress this virus as low as possible. And we in the Labour Party have been thinking and discussing this very deeply over the last number of weeks. And we believe that an aggressive suppression strategy that takes the central tenets of the zero COVID strategy is the way that we must proceed. We have no other choice. Uh, Yo-yoing in and out of lockdowns is not working. It's not working for our health system. It's not working for our people. Uh, it's not working for those people who are tragically still getting sick and unfortunately still dying. Duncan, we have heard um, from the government on why they're resisting this zero COVID policy. And Micheál Martin saying today, we're not going to make promises we can't keep. Um, can you understand that the difficulties and the complex issues we have on this island means it's very hard to impose a zero COVID policy and one that will be successful? Uh, look, we, we do understand that, and that's why we're saying that uh, we, we take the, a lot of the central planks from the zero COVID policy. But uh, we do understand that in the absence of an all-island strategy, we can't take it in its fullest form. But there's no reason why we cannot have a very robust test, trace and isolate uh, community regime, which if we do get the numbers down, and we will get the numbers down, it's to keep them down. That's what we need. That's centrally to what, what we need to achieve. And the government's uh, resistance to this, to investing resources in this, it will see the virus return once any kind of easing of restrictions goes. That's what we need to avoid. We want uh, society to reopen, but in order for that to happen, we need a testing, tracing and isolating system that is going to go into communities and hunt down the virus as it re-emerges. Okay. We need to get that virus down to low levels first, and that's why we need uh, the mandatory quarantining, and that's why we need all these other measures uh, now to, to, to get us down to that level. Labour is also looking for increased border controls. How realistic is that? Uh, well... It's, it's 20 years since the foot and mouth crisis where we had uh, checks on the border uh, for cattle. So, you know, in the absence of an all-Ireland strategy, and look, I think it's the 
opinion of all parties on every side of the house that we would ideally like an all-island strategy. But in the absence of that, we have to do what we can do within our own control. So we need checks on the border. We need that as a matter of urgency. We need a belt and braces approach. We need to be putting as much resources into this as possible. Uh, there is no other choice at this moment. The, the numbers, the mortality rates and the transmission rates are so high. These variants, remember, have been a game changer. And, you know, we need to refocus how we are tackling this virus at all levels. OK, Labour TD Duncan Smith, thank you for joining us tonight. Well, I'm joined now in studio by Public Expenditure Minister Michael McGrath. Minister, you're very welcome along. Um, Let's talk about the plan and the plan that was announced today. How did the Cabinet arrive at the decisions made specifically around travel and mandatory quarantining? Sure. Well, first of all, Claire, I want to just echo what Duncan said there uh, in expressing you know, our deepest sympathy to all of those who have tragically uh, lost their life to COVID-19. It is a very unwelcome milestone uh, with over 3,000 people now having passed away uh, in our nearest neighbours in Great Britain. They hit uh, another milestone today, 100,000 people there uh, dying from COVID. So it just brings it home to all of us in very stark terms how devastating uh, this virus is and the trail of destruction uh, it leaves behind. So today, the Cabinet considered very carefully across a number of hours and this followed on from a very lengthy uh, Cabinet COVID committee uh, meeting yesterday, um, all of the challenges and the tasks that we now have to drive down the virus numbers, primarily because of the huge pressure in our hospital system, still well over 1,700 people in hospital, uh, well over 200 people uh, in critical care, many more people uh, ventilated uh, across the acute hospital system. So we have to get these numbers down and we are seeing some signs of progress uh, so far in that regard. And there is an acknowledgement in government that with the emergence of all of these new variants, which only you know weeks ago were simply unheard of, a Brazilian variant, South African variant, UK variant, that the transmissibility of this virus has changed and it has become more transmissible. And in that sense, we have to do more uh, to restrict the movement of people across borders. And that's why we have taken very strong action today. OK, the strong action you're talking about, we heard there from uh, Labour saying it's half-hearted. Um, there's talk about a lack of ambition around it because there's a growing call, isn't there, for a stronger clampdown. What we're seeing is quarantining of some people coming in from some affected countries, but not everyone. Was there a divergence of opinion at cabinet level around this? Well, look, you always have a full and open debate at Cabinet about the options that uh, are before government and none of the options are easy or palatable. What were, what were the issues? So, you know, you asked a question about how uh, widespread in terms of the application of this, and I think it will be very widespread. Uh, it's not just all of those coming from South Africa and Brazil, and those numbers are very small. Mandatory quarantining will apply to those. Mandatory quarantining in essentially state uh, run facilities will also apply to those arriving here without a negative PCR test. Uh, and those that do arrive with a negative PCR test taken within the previous 72 hours also have to quarantine, but they will do so in their own home. And now for the first time, uh, that will be legally binding and it will be an offence not to do so. Uh, and there will be extensive powers there, Farang Garda Shia to follow up on that. So, you know, there will be a, a, a lot of people quarantining, uh, some in hotels, uh, Others will be in their own home. There will be a firm legal to basis that to that. people are quarantining at, in, quarantining at home? Because we know that's one of the issues around um, 
taking the COVID test and it coming back as negative. But we know also that those same people can get on a flight, can catch COVID on a flight. Um, they may have it brewing in their system. It doesn't show up on the PCR test. Um, and then you're taking their word for it, essentially, that they're going to quarantine. But how many people are going to do that? If they're going into homes with family <coughs> members, uh, are they going to go to their room for two weeks? Well, I think most people will uh, respect the law of the land. Uh, and the reality is that, you know, breaching this will now be uh, a significant offence, attracting, you know, pretty onerous penalty. Uh, and I think our experience to date is that the vast majority of people uh, are compliant. You know, equally, while the issue of international travel is important, we shouldn't overstate its significance. Uh, the reality is uh, that the overwhelming uh, majority of transmission of this virus has been in the community. It hasn't been as a result of the tiny number of people yeah. who are now coming into the country. You also have all of those involved in, you know, critical supplies, uh, essential services, who by the very nature of their work have to come in and out of the country. So it's very easy to have a soundbite or a slogan that, you know, quarantine everybody uh, in a hotel for two weeks and lock them up and don't let them out. In the real world, it's more complex than that. Right. And government has to work through solutions that are practicable, that are workable that we can actually uh, put into effect and that's what, what we will be doing now. people's frustration and it's a bigger issue than just the small number of people you say are coming in from um, variant hit countries and the like that we've been in a series of rolling lockdowns now. Um, it's very difficult for people at this point when we're given this date of March 5th but we don't know beyond then what we're going to see when we look at the high hospital numbers that we want to see further action, a more ambitious plan, arguably. Neffet back in May of last year suggested, actually they, it was more than a suggestion, it was a recommendation about a mandatory regime of self-isolation for 14 days for all persons arriving into Ireland. And they did take into account limited exemptions, uh, such as supply chain workers and those in transit to other jurisdictions, including the North. They've said that now for, what, you know, nine, 10 months. Why aren't we listening to Neffet? on this at this juncture? You know, we are. And, you know, we have already taken action uh, in relation to international travel when we had solid evidence uh, in relation to the transmissibility of the UK variant, for example. We introduced a ban on travel from the UK. Uh, we subsequently introduced a requirement that everybody coming into Ireland had to have a negative PCR test uh, taken within the previous 72 hours. But there is a recognition that we need to go further uh, mm. because we are dealing with a lot of uncertainty here. Um, uh, and these uh, new strains of the virus have introduced elements that we don't entirely understand. Uh, and the reality that they are more transmissible does pose huge, huge challenges for yeah. the system. Uh, and we are responding to that. But these are relatively new threats in that yeah. sense. And they are huge challenges that have been recognised, obviously not just by government, but by health officials, not just in Ireland, but globally. And we had Dr Gabriel Scally on the show last night and he said what's being proposed and has been announced today um, is like bailing out a boat with a sieve. Wouldn't you agree? No, I wouldn't agree. I, I, I completely um, disagree with that. If you take, for example, Why? the issue of people coming across the border from uh, Northern Ireland, and that is, you know, a, a real challenge that we face. Mm -hmm. uh, Should we, uh, and we, um, if I can just address that sure. point, that it, for people who decide to, you know, land in Belfast and now travel down to the Republic uh, to come home thinking that they're getting around these restrictions. They're not. The exact same legal obligations uh, will apply to those people uh, as apply to somebody landing in Dublin Airport, for example. Okay. Um, but 
you know, there is a reality here too. We do share a, a land border uh, with the UK. Uh, we are part of the European Union where there is uh, the freedom of movement of people. So this is very challenging yeah. and all countries within the EU uh, are trying to grapple with these difficulties uh, at a time when we have new emerging information uh, all the time about the variants. But, you know, there's a lot of talk recently about zero COVID, you know, lockdown the country. How long do you lock it down for? And what okay, happens then? And we'll then? get on to that. But just going back to the difficulties and the challenges uh, presented by dealing with two administrations on one island, you know, Dr. Scally has said it and so many others have said it. Let's see beyond politics on this one. Can it not be addressed? Could efforts not really be compounded now in order to come to some sort of agreement that would enable us to ensure quarantining across the island? There is absolutely no lack of willingness on the part of the Irish government uh, to do that. If there's uh, no lack of willingness, why are we closing the door on it? We're not closing the door on it. Uh, the reality is that we have a multi-party system in the Northern Executive where, unfortunately, in, in some instances, politics seems to matter more uh, than doing the right thing on issues mm. like this. Uh, and for example, and people, people come in... And that's the criticism being at the government, well, that politics matters well, more. It can't be legitimately levelled at the Irish government. Uh, we want to have uh, an all-island approach. That is absolutely the most effective way of dealing with this and taking advantage of the benefit of being well, what uh, an a island. a two-island approach and, you know, involving... I think well. I think that's aspirational, and there there have been you know initial discussions uh, on that issue between the Taoiseach and the British Prime Minister, but it would be dishonest of us to hold that out as the great white hope and the solution to our problems in the short term. The reality is it, it is not because okay. having a two island solution, okay. you know, the the situation with COVID in the UK uh, is pretty serious as if, well. If we take if 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 you say that it's very complex and we can't reach an agreement. Um, with uh, the North on this. Should we not aim anyway to, to quarantine everyone coming into the country? If, I mean, is there any point in making um, rules? You're saying, well, those rules could be broken. Is, but that's not a reason for not making the rules in any case, is it? Well, I think we're putting really uh, strong rules in place now. And these are uh, deterrents really to people who are thinking of travelling. People shouldn't be travelling abroad from Ireland now uh, unless you know it is for uh, a, a really exceptional and essential reason. Uh, otherwise, they are breaking the law, and you know when they try to come back into Ireland, they're going to face all of these real difficulties. So uh, we are looking at mandatory quarantining that is going to be implemented uh, in hotels uh, and also in people's home homes, and it will have a legal okay. basis uh, and it will be a penal offence. Okay, I want, I want to move on to what we saw announced today, which was level five for close to six weeks now, bringing us up to March 5th. What are the benchmarks for moving out of level five? Well, in terms of COVID figures, when we're looking at the hospital numbers. Yeah, so look in, uh, you know, in four to five weeks time, we will reassess the situation. Uh, we will engage with NEFIT, uh, take on board the public health advice at that time. Uh, but, you know, the, the most important issue uh, that we're facing right now is the huge challenge that our frontline healthcare staff are facing mm. in the hospital system and indeed in nursing homes too, uh, and in other uh, congregated and community settings. And so we just have to take the pressure uh, off those people and to be fair to the Irish people, you know, they, they, they are knuckling down. I think they recognise how serious this is. And we are seeing yeah. really good progress now with the daily cases falling, the okay. positivity rate falling, uh, the close contacts falling. So it is going in the right direction, but there will be a significant time lag between how and it improves in the sure. hospital system. And, and, and 
we're so well aware of, of the strains that hospitals and, and frontline healthcare workers are under at the moment. There are also people at home who are on the pande pandemic unemployment payment. Um, unemployment is now standing at over 20%. You did envisage, um, you did make this plans for the year ahead on, on the scenario of a no, uh, no deal Brexit and no vaccine. We have a, a Brexit deal of sorts. Um, we have the vaccine, but we didn't really envisage the COVID numbers to be where they are now and the lockdowns to be rolling right into 2021, did we? Well, we have made provision, extensive provision uh, within uh, the budget for 2021 uh, to deal with very significant COVID costs through the year. So uh, you're right, we assumed, for example, uh, that there wouldn't be a Brexit trade deal, uh, and there has been, so that's a positive. Uh, we assumed that there wouldn't be a widespread vaccination programme, uh, and the vaccination programme has started. So that's a positive uh, in that uh, we're doing better than our assumption. Um, but equally, we didn't uh, assume stringent lockdowns for a prolonged and period of time. And that's what, we, that's what we have right now. But I want to reassure uh, businesses uh, and households uh, that we are going to stand with them. We are going to continue with the supports uh, that we are providing. We recognise how invaluable they are. I watched your show last night and the hoteliers were on and to be fair they recognised uh, the supports government are providing. We will continue with those, those supports. So we've provided really extensive resources in the form of our COVID contingency fund, uh, our recovery fund. We have about five and a half billion or so there that can be allocated and it will be needed. Uh, it will be drawn down over the next uh, number of months uh, to ensure that we can continue with those schemes and, and, and tragically we have you know 475,000 people on the pulp payment now over 100,000 of them actually lost their job last March and haven't worked since through no fault of their own which is, so we're going to have a huge job of work is, ahead of government when, when we get through this to rebuild the economy and, and help people get back to work. just on that number 475,000 people currently receiving that payment amounts to a 5.5 billion euro spend who's going to pay for all of that? So we have provided uh, resources within the budget uh, for continuing with the pop payments for certainly for the foreseeable future and any changes will only happen in tandem with the evolving health okay, should situation we, should we be, and the reopening are we of the looking economy. Are we looking at serious belt tightening in future budgets? Well, we've provided for this. So the forecast this year is for a deficit of over 20 billion euro. Uh, in 2020, it was 19 billion. Uh, it could well be, you know, of, of a similar order in 2021. Uh, we can afford to do this uh, for now. Of course, you can't afford to do it uh, indefinitely. We're in a when, position. At where what point would the government start worrying um, about how far the resources can take us and how long we can continue? Um, to support people because people are so badly in need of those supports. At what point is there is there a worry? They are, and look, it, it's our job to worry about that uh, and to worry about the public finances, but this is manageable uh, and this is affordable uh, and we have planned for uh, these types of scenarios and the reality is we are now in a position to borrow at historic low interest rates. Uh, our debt is sustainable. We will lay out a plan for bringing the public finances uh, back into to better order over a period of time, but it would be absolutely the wrong thing to do now to withdraw the support from people and businesses when they most need them and we're not going to do that. No. Minister for Public Expenditure. Michael McGrath, thank you for joining thank us you, in the studio tonight. Now, coming up, the latest from Europe on the vaccine, and we'll be live in Limerick and Melbourne as the virus continues to cause economic and social havoc across the globe. Stay with us.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Now, vaccines are the big issue dominating political discussions at home and at EU level. Today, the European Medicines Agency briefed a European Parliament committee on the vaccine rollout. A short time ago, I asked Irish Times Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary for the very latest. Naomi, the European Medicines Agency briefed the European Parliament today um, on a number of issues around the vaccines, AstraZeneca being top of the agenda. Uh, What do they have to say? Well, the big thing that we can expect this week is there should be a decision by Friday. That's what the EMA hopes, uh, according to the director, Emer Cook, who briefed Parliament today. And she said that, you know, they'll be making a decision. It'll hopefully be um, decided by the end of this week. And that should um, then allow the company to, if it's a positive decision, assuming it is, start making deliveries immediately. Now, those deliveries are lower than had been expected. There's been quite a controversy over this. Um, The company says that it's run into some manufacturing uh, holdups at some of its plants, which means that its expected vaccine deliveries are going to be lower at first for the EU. Um, But the first delivery is, according to the the CEO, is supposed to be uh, 17 million in the the first week, uh, of which Ireland should be in line for about 1%, as it will be doled out according to the population of EU countries. Um, So there should be um, all going well, some AstraZeneca doses coming, although less than hoped for. Um, There is a possibility, according to Director uh, Emer Cook, that in some cases with vaccines, um, they can be recommended or authorised for a particular age group. Uh, She wasn't commenting directly on the AstraZeneca vaccine itself, but in the case of AstraZeneca, in the trials, not that many older people took part. They don't have data for that many people in older age groups. Um, And there had been questions in the build-up to this briefing about whether then that would mean that the regulator would be in a position to authorise its use for older age groups. We'll have to wait until Friday to see whether um, what the recommendation will be by the regulator. Um, But it is possible in some vaccines that it could be authorised for age 65 and under. Uh, but many European Union states are, you know, holding out on this, this vaccine is a very important part of their vaccine strategy. It's less difficult to roll out because it doesn't need to be frozen at very deep temperatures like the Pfizer vaccine, for example. So it's easier to distribute, for example, in GPs or maybe pharmacies. And for that reason, it's an important part of the rollout for many EU countries. And they're very keen to start getting deliveries as soon as possible. And that urgency is, of course, compounded by 
the surge in COVID cases that we're seeing right around Europe. Um, we've introduced new travel restrictions today. Are we looking at a possible EU-wide travel policy? Yeah, earlier this week, um, the European Commission laid out proposals for tightening travel across the EU. And a large motivation for that is the post-Christmas surge in Ireland. Ireland's surge was so dramatic uh, from being you know, a country that was relatively lightly hit uh, re relative to the rest of the EU to being the worst, um, which it currently ranks um, on the chart of the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control. Um, and that was read in other European capitals as a warning about the potential of the new uh, variant that first emerged in Britain and its higher effectiveness, infectiousness. And the fear is uh, that if that variant were to make its way across the continent, it could you know, really allow a, a, a bigger wave to take off that um, put more pressure on hospitals that are already struggling. So for that reason, there was really strong calls for tighter restrictions on travel. And really, you know, the focus of many capitals is to try and prevent that variant spreading from Ireland, okay. where it's now accounting to for a very high number of strains. Okay, um, So they're very keen to keep it up out as, as much as possible. Naomi O'Leary, Irish Times Europe correspondent. Thank you for that update. Well, businesswoman and broadcaster Nora Casey is here with me now. Thank you for joining us tonight, uh, Nora. I want to talk to you specifically about the economic problems now and how it's looking for those businesses out there just received news and we're well aware that it was coming, but that this lockdown will be extended to March 5th and beyond that for many uh, businesses. What's your take on the government's handling of it? Ask me an easier question. <laughs> I think the difficulty is that most businesses, when it came into uh, the slight opening up before Christmas, had almost given up by then. I know plenty of SME owners who didn't bother to open up. They felt themselves there was so much talk about a further lockdown that it was inevitable. If I was a nurse first. So just to say, my priority and everyone else's is always around the vaccine rollout and issues around public health. Nonetheless, if I ran a business and everybody in the boardroom was talking about just one topic, that business would go under. So we have every single person in a leadership position, almost in government, talking about public health issues and the vaccine rollout. Where does that leave us with? At the beginning of the pandemic, we had virtually full employment. We had a quarter of a million SMEs, very vibrant SME sector, employing just under a million people in Ireland. Now decimated. You know, a lot of them have debt. We found out just towards the end of last year that over 20% of them are still not able to pay the debt from previous, previous periods. So as we go into 2021, my hope would be there would be a significant high-level advisory board that would look at the economy and that would look at the SME sector. So that's not happening. Even... And I don't like criticising anybody individually, but it's not helpful that the Tornister is also in charge of this sector, because I think his priority is probably talking about the, you know, the virus, talking about the vaccine rollout, talking about issues around zero COVID. You think his eyes off the ball? Well, I wouldn't say his eyes off the ball, but it's significantly distracted. You know, I think that we're really suffering in this particular environment by not getting a march on what we could do this year to try and help those SMEs. I hear time and again people talking about that the level of insolvencies are going to be quite high this year. Well, that underline that they're human beings, people that I talk to every day, sometimes husband and wives who haven't been able to avail of supports, and they've been propped up 
to a great extent by the policies that the government has put in, but not necessarily by something that's more sustainable for them, and that's grants. It's not about liquidity, it's not about loans, it's actually about grants to help them. And the government would say, and the minister um, broached it there, he said, we are supporting businesses, we know it's hard. Oh, we Claire, know sorry, can I just say one thing? You yes. go on to the government uh, website, there are over 100 touch points as to how you might be able to find help if you're an SME owner. So over 100. Uh, recently, somebody said, what's your big idea? I said, a telephone helpline, a free phone, because somewhere at some point, somebody said, oh, let's do that. And it's now in the bowels of some basement. Various county councils have tried to set one up. I see Guinness has set one up today for the publicans. But still, I can't say to an SME owner, just dial that number there. There'll be an experienced person at the other end that will guide you through all of the various supports that are available. Um, we want to go to Katrina Cahill, economist with the Limerick Chamber of commerce and the economic fallout uh, from the pandemic has been devastating regions we know all over the country. Uh, Katrina, what's your take on how bad it's been for the Midwest? Um, so similar to other regions, the impact of the pandemic on the Midwest has really been a two-tier impact. Um, you know, we have one level where there are certain sectors where it's been minimal disruptions like mid-tech industry and sectors that have very quickly been able to adapt remote working policies like professional services and financial services. But then we have another tier which tells a completely different story that has been significantly impacted um, with sectors like retail, hospitality, construction. Um, and in the Midwest, those three sectors would make up about 26% of the employment base in the region. So that's why it's really important that we start to look at the impact of this pandemic, not just through a national lens, but also through um, a regional lens, because the impact of the pandemic on the Midwest would have been much more severe had it not been for efforts after the 2008 economic crisis to diversify the employment base in the region. So, for example, uh, we saw increases in uh, FDI-related employment. And that gave us, to some degree, a cushion effect that certain other regions, like, let's say, the Midlands, uh, didn't benefit from to the same degree. So it really is important that we take into account that the impact of the pandemic across the regions has not been uniform. And unless there is targeted intervention by government, the recovery across the regions will not be uniform. I want to ask you that, Katrina, on a very practical uh, and urgent level, what could be done now to help specific regions? Because as you're outlining, the needs are different for a small limerick business versus multinational based out of Dublin or, you know, the, the needs are different. So the requirements and the, the, the state support would be different too, you're saying? Yeah, so look, today the response by government to supporting businesses has been strong. Um, but if we are to have um, the lockdown end on March 5th and a phased reopening of the economy, you know, we heard from Minister McGrath that there's a commitment up to that point, certainly to continue um, with the supports. And that's good to hear. But the thing to remember is that with the phased reopening of the economy, if we think about certain sectors like the tourism sector, the tourism sector hopefully will largely by summertime be servicing the domestic tourism um, demand. But if you think about it in the context of the rollout of the vaccine programme, um, we'll still be in the midst of that. So it's it's unlikely that, you know, that there will be a full lifting of restrictions for international travel. So the benefit 
of the tourism um, companies and how much they can gain from the international market will be very restricted. So there will be a need for a government to support those industries during that period. And why that's important in particular is that if you look at it through a city lens, in terms of the regional cities, Limerick has the highest dependency rate um, on tourism revenue from foreign tourists. It represents about 70% of total tourism revenue, whereas in Cork it's about 60% and in Waterford it's about 45%. Um, so it's really important to remember that the reopening of the domestic tourism economy will benefit the different regions in the country in different, in ways. different ways. Okay, Nora, I want to bring you back in here. It seems very clear from what Katrina is saying that um, regions, they, 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 need, they need different supports depending on where they are, that there are different needs and that there are businesses out there really suffering and not getting uh, the support they need. What would you say to them tonight? Because the government would say, and I know you've argued that, you know, that it, 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 isn't, it isn't clear enough, but the government would say, look, hang in there. We know it's tough. We're all in a very difficult situation and we will keep helping with those grants and we will help with the, the, the PUP and all of that. And don't worry, we'll get out of this. Yeah, I think the underlying um, policy supports have been superb, but that doesn't fix the problem. So if you're only looking at this year ahead, well, we're not fixing anything. This is a strategic thing about the next two to three years. Exactly what Katrina is saying. At the moment, we have silos of businesses, whether it's the publicans, the hoteliers, the retail sector, all demanding action from central government. And yet, it's rural areas that actually need the support. They actually need the funding. So if you look at a town like Westport um, and you say, OK, how much of that town was exposed to tourism? Where's the pub? Where's the hotels? A lot of hotels in Westport. Where's the local economy? What's in the hinterland in terms of local produce? Give the money to them because it's not about all the hotels together, all the publicans together. It's about looking at each of those little microcosms ac across Ireland and giving them, I guess, something which replaces something the rural. Other, yeah. Something so, more? Every, Does that mean you, Claire, you, you the, have to take from other businesses in order to support no, more in, in the, the problem regions. at the moment is prior to the pandemic, we have huge amounts of rural regeneration funding out there and it's in about 20 different agencies. And then in central government, I guess if you had a minister sitting here with a business portfolio, they would tell you it's very complex. And that's what SMEs are experiencing, that you can go to Microfinance Ireland, the local enterprise offices, Enterprise Ireland, you can go to the county council, you can go to the chambers, you can go to all manner of different people, and there'll be all sorts of various supports. Given that I haven't got a magic wand to put them all into one department, what you could do with a telephone service, with a central office, is maybe provide a whole raft of people with the expertise and knowledge to guide people through all of that. Not only would it provide employment, maybe there are retired SME owners, bosses out there, businesses who could actually staff the phones and act as volunteers to help SMEs. Because how many of me are there? There's lots of me who spend all day, every day trying to help SMEs get over the line, mm -hmm. knowing that some of them won't survive. Okay, Nora, thank you for that. Well, journalist Catherine Murphy, um, and thanks to Katrina for joining us uh, too on that one. Now, journalist Catherine Murphy from ABC Melbourne joins me now uh, on pandemic life across the globe in Australia. Uh, Catherine, you've been celebrating Australia Day. Well, that was yesterday, your time. What was that like in the time of a pandemic? It was really different. Hello to you, Claire. It 
there's a sense of normality coming back for sure, but things aren't fully back to normal. There aren't large-scale events anymore as we would have seen in the past. Now, Melbourne went through a really harsh, long, a severe lockdown. We had a second wave here, whereas the rest of Australia really continued as normal. They didn't have to go through that. They didn't have to go into another severe lockdown. We have had minor outbreaks in Sydney where small sections sections of the population have locked down. But in Melbourne, this city was in lockdown for much of the year. And even to the point where, Claire, Melbourne is known as the world capital of sport and we lost everything. Even Aussie rules, which is for the most case, based in Melbourne. We lost that to other states. Everything was cancelled. We couldn't even run sports behind closed doors and we're only starting to get those events back now. So the first big event with crowds was the cricket test between Australia and India at the MCG. There was around 25% crowds there. The next big event is the Australian Open Tennis. Now, that's been a huge logistical effort because it's meant flying in more than 1,200 tennis stars and their support staff. They've all had to undergo quarantine. They're all in their hotels right now ahead of the start of play yeah, next we've week. Heard, we've heard so much about um, the quarantining in the hotels and the tennis divas who are demanding all sorts of extras and to move out of the accommodation they're, they're in to something uh, maybe a little more plush. But in a general sense, because we're discussing all this around quarantining here, and a, a tighter lockdown and looking towards a zero COVID policy. There are growing calls for that here. Living through that, how tough has it been for uh, people in Melbourne? Or are they happy now that they went through that because of where, where, where they're at at the moment? I think people in Melbourne are really happy now because of what they went through, but they're anxious, Claire. They're anxious about it happening again. They're scared by it. There was a lot of reaction to tennis players coming into the country for a number of reasons. Firstly, because our second wave was caused by an outbreak in hotel quarantine. So people were worried about that happening again. The second reason being 40,000 Australians are stranded and can't get back into the country because there's a weekly cap on the number of Australians that can return and quarantine here. Now, the important thing to point out is tennis players are not part of that weekly cap. They were flown in on chartered flights. Their quarantine has been funded by Tennis Australia. But there's, there's fear and anxiety, Claire. People are so happy that normality is returning and they do not want to have another setback. Okay, Catherine Murphy in Australia, thank you for joining us with the latest on restrictions there. Now, coming up, the growing issue of hidden abuse behind closed doors in Irish homes. Stay with us. Welcome back. New Gartha figures have revealed the extent of domestic abuse behind closed doors in Irish homes during lockdown, with a 16% rise in calls to Gartha. Nolene Blackwell from the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre joins me now, and Nora Casey is still here with me. I want to go to you first, Nolene, on those figures. Um, 43,000 calls representing that 16% increase in, in, on 2019 um, figures. It's startlingly high, but it 
arguably and likely doesn't reveal the full extent of domestic abuse in this country. And I think that's exactly the case here. It is not a true reflection of the extent of abuse. But what it does show is that year on year, for the past number of years, the number of people who recognise that they should not put up with violence in their own homes, that it is wrong and that it is not their fault, that number is growing year on year. We reckon in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, about 20% of the people who engage with us in therapeutic uh, healing each year, about 20% of them are victims of intimate partner violence, be that a current partner or a past um, partner. And so domestic violence can take so many forms. It can be physical, it can be sexual, it can be emotional, it can be coercive, it can be so many things. And, and it has, of course, been a real risk during the lockdown because the one thing we were told to stay safe we all had to go into our homes, into the places where we lived. And that, for most people, was the safe thing to do. But it was a real risk for others. For some people, we're at risk of, um, it just became a, a bigger issue. Uh, the abuser was more about, and uh, they were more there, there was no escape. And that sense, um, like everyone suffered during lockdown, but so many people's minds went to those who are in those situations of coercive control, domestic abuse, and that sense that there was no escape for them. In response to that, we did see a big campaign around Operation Fuishiv and what um, Gardaí were going to do to help people and help people come forward. How do you think that's worked? Yeah, in fact, uh, we really have to credit the guards for the work that they did on Operation Fuishiv. In fact, one of the interesting things for all our state authorities who were involved in this was in April, in, in the very first month of the worst of the restrictions, um, on Garda Siakona, the Department of Justice, Tusla, the Child and Family Agency, all prioritised the safety of people who were victims of domestic and sexual violence in their homes. And Operation Fuishev did something that uh, we have to hope will remain a permanent feature of the landscape. First of all, even though they needed more Gardaí doing more sort of checking and control work on the streets, they kept up all of their specialised services for domestic and sexual violence. And then in addition to hearing from more people, they actually went out to people who were on their books already, as it were, as people at risk of violence uh, in their homes. Okay. And they reminded them that they were there. Okay. And the other thing, that, 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 just to, to kind of put the other bit of it was, um, many, many people who had um, protection orders, safety orders that they got from the family law courts, got them again because the courts continued during lockdown. And where they were breached, the Gardaí followed up and prosecuted so that the figures okay. that were out yesterday um, showed that there were more than 4,000 charges prosecuted okay. in the courts. And Nora, um, we're hearing a lot of good things there about um, you know the, 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 the efforts that were made. The big issue here, though, is... Um, 
refuge and where women go when they're in trouble. Yeah, I think um, Nolan was just ending there talking about the the 4,000 uh, charges that were made for breaches of orders. And that, like behind that, you have to remember that that's 4,000 occasions when violent men decided that they would breach the safety order and go to that woman's home or go near her or, um, or goodness knows, something else that might have been violent. And that was 20% up. So that was far higher than what it had been previously. Then what happens to those women? I, I don't, you know, as somebody who who has been a survivor of domestic violence. I, you know, I refer all women who approach me usually to Women's Aid and to the to the various domestic violence charities and to Safe Ireland. But I have a small group of women I work really closely yeah. with. And the biggest difficulty is in Ireland, we have only about a third okay. of the refuge places. Safe Ireland recently said that they had to turn away 3,200 requests. And it's a huge number. Um, and if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in that discussion tonight, you can contact these helpline numbers in confidence. And that is it from us. Matt will be back here tomorrow night at 10 from the late team here. Good night. Stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.